0: 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Should I watch this movie tonight? Should we eat at that restaurant? Should I order that drink? What do you think about this outfit for church or for this event? How should I spend that bonus I've received from my job? Should our kids be in sports? Should we homeschool or Christian school or charter school or public school? How much TV should our children watch? Should I get a cell phone for my teenager? What social media platforms should I be on? Should you celebrate that holiday tomorrow? (laughs) Should you get married? How many children should you have? Could you have? All of those are questions of Christian liberty, Christian freedoms we have in Christ. And over the past number of weeks, we have been studying 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10, and now 11, and verse 1. We will end our study this morning. These chapters guide the believer in wisdom decisions that are not clearly commanded or prohibited in Scripture. And so we have freedom in Christ. We have Christian liberty in those areas. What has our definition been for Christian liberty? Do you remember that definition? Christian liberty, this was a number of weeks ago, we said, is the freedom to apply the scriptures in different ways and in different contexts for the sake of serving others. It's the freedom to be able to apply the scriptures in different contexts, in different ways, for the sake of loving other people. Christian liberty is not about what I want, but about what God wants and how I can serve and love other people. All those questions I asked at the beginning of my sermon here relate to Christian liberty issues that we probably will differ on in many areas. And the truth is, because we live in different contexts and there's various cultural and social backgrounds that we come from, because our hearts are, have different temptations, the answer to how we apply the scriptures in those different areas will be different. And that's okay. We call these Christian liberty issues we call these Christian freedoms or I'm calling these also personal convictions personal convictions and so that's what these last three chapters are dealing with and so our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 23 through, 23 through verse 11 verse, or chapter 11 verse 1 so it's 10 23, through chapter 11, verse 1. And this is actually a concluding paragraph, kind of a, a summary of Paul's teaching on Christian liberty. And so that's why I titled my sermon, A Biblical Summary of Christian Liberty Issues. And so the question, I think these three chapters, and particularly this summary asks, is how do you glorify God in your personal convictions? in those Christian liberty areas, how do we glorify God? You see, everything we do, every decision we make, every thought, every word, every action in our life is worship. We worship not just in the 1030 to noon hour on Sunday mornings. Every day, everything we do is worship. So at the center of every Christian decision then must be God and how we can worship and glorify him. In fact, go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to see this in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, that God is at the the center of every decision we make. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, starting off about these Christian liberty issues Notice verse 3, he says, if anyone, if anyone loves God. So their Christian liberty decisions are about loving God. Love for God must be the desire and joy of our hearts. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23. Christian liberty decisions are about the work of God. Verse 23, Paul says, In his own testimony about how he applies Christian liberty issues, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. So as he considers his decisions, he asks, how can this advance the gospel, the work of God? And then go to chapter 10, verse 22, and here we're considering our own temptations in regard to Christian liberty issues and how maybe a Christian liberty decision might even tempt us to sin against God. And in chapter 10, verse 22, we see that he's concerned about provoking God to jealousy. God's jealousy is his unwavering zeal to keep and protect that which is his. And what is God's? Well, God demands us to worship and glorify him. He owns glory he deserves to receive the glory. And then finally, look at the concluding verse here. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. I think this is a, a verse that summarizes here that God is at the center of our decisions. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Don't miss this important conclusion here because this verse reminds us that Christian liberty decisions are not about what we want. It's not, well, what movie do I want to watch? It's not, how do I want to spend my money? It's not, what clothes look good on me? It's not, what songs appeal to me? It's not what I want. It's, what brings glory to God? How can I worship him and, re, and, and with these things in these areas? And so 1 Corinthians 10.31 reminds us that life and our decisions must be all about God. Every decision we make is a choice either to love God and bring glory to God or to love ourselves and bring glory to ourselves. Worshiping God is not confined to the church building. It's something that happens at work. At home, in the car, everywhere. You worship God every day, whether you eat or drink or work or drive or shop or plan or parent or scroll or walk or think. Every day we worship. And either we're worshiping God or we're worshiping ourselves. We rob God of the glory that is due. To his name. And so in verse 31 it says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. We are to do everything for the glory of God. So God must be at the beginning of every decision. His glory must be our motive and our aim. God must be the foundation for every decision. His word is the rock. His word is our guide. God must be the one energizing every decision. His spirit must give us grace. God must be at the heart of every decision. His love must be our joy. God must be the end of every decision. His glory must be our desire. So the question then is, if we as Christians want to glorify God, how do we do that? And this morning, we are gonna see from this text of scripture and really from these three chapters that God is glorified when you apply your Christian freedom with a conscience calibrated by God's word and in a way that spiritually builds up others and yourself. Would you notice 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23? I'm going to read from verse 23 to chapter 11, verse 1. Would you stand with me as I read God's word? 1 Corinthians chapter. 10, verse 23, I'll I'll read out loud as you follow along in your copy of the scriptures. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I am to try to please everyone, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Father, we ask that your word will be planted deep in us And may it spring forth with fruit of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. God spoke the universe into existence. Designed galaxies, fashioned them with precision and beauty for his glory. God established this earth with its natural greenhouse that regulates the atmospheric temperature and protects us from the solar rays. And he gave us this earth to reflect and give glory to his name. God created species and ecosystems that are interdependent and complex, yet are glorious and splendor. And he did that for his own glory. He created Man and woman in his image for his glory. God gifted you with a mind and with a mouth and with hands and with a will so you will glorify him. God sent Christ to redeem us by the power of the Holy Spirit so we could be saved. So we could glorify him. God has done Will do and will continue to do what he wants for his glory. And so we too must live for the glory of God. And it's with that in mind that we ask this question before we make a decision what glorifies God? Now, if you don't mind today, I'm going to do something a little different, as you see on your handout there. I'm going to walk through a tree diagram. Any of you like that kind of stuff? Okay, some of you engineers out there and some other people, teachers, whatever. You might like that. That's what we're going to do this morning. And so you can see at the top of that, we have the word decision. this morning, I want to ask you to think through decisions you make each day, throughout your week, in your life, Think of those decisions, and and then how do you make those decisions? If you're a Christian, then you have been, if you're a human, you've been created in God's image, so you're to glorify him. If you're a Christian, you have been redeemed to glorify him. So therefore, we start with this question. In my decision-making, God is at the beginning of every decision. What glorifies God? whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we ask this question, how do I bring glory to God? So as we consider a decision, we ask that question, how do we bring glory to God? And if it's God's glory we're aiming for, then we go to him and we ask him what? What brings you glory? Sometimes my wife likes to rearrange the kitchen, And, you know, get things in maybe a different order or whatever it is. And so then you go in there and you do the dishes or whatever. And as men, we're supposed to do that. I don't do it as faithfully as I should. That's probably a good confession to have up here. But, you know, if you take some of those dishes and you're trying to find a place for it, you have two options. One option is you do what? You just stuff it wherever. But it's her kitchen that she takes care of and she feeds us wonderful food. And so what should I do? If if I want to put the kitchen back how she wants it, I do what? Where does this go? You know, hopefully eventually I figured it out and, you know, remember next time as well. And since this is God's world, since we are created in his image and we're to bring him glory, then we go to him and say, God, how do we glorify you? Where do we find the answer to that? That's found in the scripture. What, What does God say? Well, what does... God's word, say, God's word, God's word has the answers. God's word tells us the truth about him and what he wants us to know. And God's word, God's word is true. And as we consider what God's word says, we, we understand that the scripture says that all scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for doctrine. So, so the scripture, the Word of God has come from God. It's about God, and it contains the truths that God wants us to know. It's about doctrine. what is right? Psalm 19:8 says, "The precepts of the Lord are right. So God's word clearly communicates to us precepts. There are Commands, there are mandates, there are absolute truths that are undeniable, that are timeless. That means they, they go through every generation, they apply to every generation. They're universal. That means they are truths that transcend all cultures and all ethnicities. And so in God's Word, we see that God has truth, and it's truth that never changes. We call those truths precepts. And we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so I don't want to really want to land on this for very long, but it's important for us to recognize that as we go to God's word, there are things that are true that never change. They're absolute truths. And therefore, we form convictions about those things. And the first category we had was gospel convictions. And gospel convictions are the highest level of importance for our faith because this tells us what we believe about God and the gospel, what you believe about gospel convictions determines where you spend eternity. And so gospel convictions tell us who God is. There is one triune God who exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, sent the Son, born of a virgin. Lived, he lived a perfect life. He atoned for our sin. He rose from the dead. The scriptures are true. And so, if you look at your paper there in the back, you'll see some examples there of, of gospel convictions. And we, as Christians, we unify with true Christians in these convictions, no matter the denomination, unless they deny these convictions. We love people in this world enough to go tell them the gospel convictions of the scriptures. And the next level of, of conviction is. Doctrinal convictions, doctrinal convictions are truths we unify together as a church. When you became a church member, you said, here are convictions that we agree the Bible teaches. And these are truths that are important for your spiritual health and the health of the church. And you can see some of those on the back, some of those examples as well. One of those relates to baptism, right? Baptism isn't a gospel issue. In other words, you don't get saved by being baptized, But it is something that's important to obey Christ in. And so some of you in here are Christians. You say, I'm a Christian. Have you been baptized? Well, that's a doctrinal conviction. Christ commands us to go preach the gospel when people trust in Christ. They are to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you're you're in here today and you're a Christian and you've not been baptized, then I call you based upon the command of Christ to obey this doctrinal conviction. Next week we have a baptism, by the way. We got seven days to get you ready. And I think it's going to be pretty easy to do that. So please talk to me after the service if you want to follow the Lord in this area. And each Christian must unify with a local church in these doctrinal convictions. We love those in the church by discipling each other and being discipled in these convictions. And so in gospel convictions and doctrinal convictions, we believe that God's word is clear. God's word is true. These are precepts that we trust and we obey. And when we trust and obey in these gospel convictions and doctrinal convictions, we believe it glorifies God. But what about those things the Bible isn't very clear about? Those things that maybe the Bible doesn't even address? You know, the Bible doesn't talk about social media, does it? So so what about stuff like that? Well... The scripture gives us principles to live by. Precepts are universal truths that don't change. And principles are general truths found in God's word that communicate God's wisdom to us. And so the answer to the question here today is, the first answer to the question, how do you glorify God in your personal convictions? Well, God is glorified when you apply Your Christian freedom with a conscience calibrated by God's word. In fact, do this with me. Go back to chapter 8. I want to show you how this starts off. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. What's the issue that Paul is talking about here? Paul is talking about meat offered to idols. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. And the question really in all these cha- these three chapters is, can a Christian walk into the marketplace, come up to a piece of meat, likely that meat was sacrificed in the temple earlier that day, in, a, in an idol's temple. Can he get that meat, buy it, and take it home and eat it? Did the idol taint that meat? You know, maybe there's something wrong with it now because it was in the idol's temple, So can we eat that meat sacrificed to Zeus or Aphrodite or Poseidon or whatever, whoever the false idol, false god is? So if we want to glorify God, then what do we do? We ask God, God, what does your word say about this? And so if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, you can see the Corinthians believers argued, they said, we know, and then you see those quotations, if you have an ESV, all of us possess knowledge. In other words, that's what the Corinthians said. They said, we know what the knowledge is about idols and the one true God. What knowledge are they talking about? And again, I'm kind of reviewing something we talked about a number of weeks ago, but that was the knowledge of what God's word says about idols and about the one true God. What does God's word say? Well, idols are nothing. (laughs) Like They're just pieces of of metal or stone or wood. Like, they're nothing. There's only one God. There's not a bunch of gods. Zeus is a myth, right? And we're, we roll our eyes. We're like, obviously. But back at this time, those people thought they were real. Like, there really was a Zeus. There really was a Poseidon who controlled the seas. Like, they thought that was real. And, and so they say, no, no, we know the Bible says that's all, those are fables. There's only one true and living triune God, And you can see actually in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 8 that Paul agreed with them. And he, he talks about that. So then the question is, if idols are nothing, and when you sacrifice a piece of meat before an idol, it doesn't like contaminate the idol in some way. When it gets hung up in a marketplace, can we eat that? And the answer generally is, yes, you can eat that. It could be a sin for you. If your conscience thinks that it's wrong, it could be a sin for you if it, if it leads you back into idol worship. It's a sin for you to go in the temple and sacrifice to that idol. That's First Corinthians chapter 10. But the, the problem for the Corinthian believers was not their knowledge of God's word, it was their pride. And That's what he's addressing in, in chapter 8. But but don't miss this in chapter 8, and that is that Paul agreed that they had Christian liberty based upon God's word. So now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 25, and we see Paul again bringing up this issue and encouraging, actually, those who have a strong conscience in this area to eat the meat offered to idols. He actually uses a command, and he does so based upon the principles of God's word. Look at verse 25. Eat, so this is Paul speaking to Christian believers, those who have a strong conscience, eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. And Then notice the scripture, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So here in verse 25, we have a scenario of someone walking into a market and they're there to buy some food, there's some meat. Oh, obviously that was probably just sacrificed in an idol's temple. Can I eat it? Paul says, yes, you can. If your conscience allows you to eat it. Notice that in verse 25. He says, on the ground of conscience, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In verse 25, that conscience is your conscience. Then I'm reviewing some things, but again, remember, what is the conscience? The conscience is your inner person. It's your inner consciousness that either accuses or excuses you. It's that inner voice that makes your adrenaline pump when you're driving down the road and you look in your rearview mirror and you see blue and red lights flashing. And you slam on the brake, right? And you you look at your speedometer, and you're going 80 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour work zone. And your conscience says, oops, I messed that one up. That's the conscience. It's an inner voice that says if you're doing right or wrong. God has given every person a wonderful gift, and that's the gift of the conscience. And it's like an alarm in your heart. Now, alarms can be wrong, can't they? They can be ignored. They can be turned off. Some of you did that this morning. Right? You didn't make it to the Sunday class at 9 o'clock because you turned your alarm off. Right? you the snooze. You hit the snooze and hit the snooze and hit the snooze. Some of you didn't even set an alarm. But your conscience is like an alarm, it's not like Jiminy Cricket. You know what I'm talking about? Pinocchio was given a gift by what, the Blue Fairy or something, and it was a cricket who said that he was his conscience. And, of course, he sang the song, give a little whistle and always let your conscience be your guide. No, that's really bad advice. So your conscience is not your guide. God's word is your guide. The Holy Spirit calibrates your conscience according to God's word. That's what should happen for a Christian. Your conscience is an alarm. And just like any other alarm, you can turn it off. <laughs> you can ignore your alarm. Some of you sleep. How many of you sleep, you know, 10, 15 minutes while your alarm is going beep, 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 right? And you ignore it. And see, we can do that with our conscience as well. That's what Paul's warning about here. And so what we do is we take God's word and we calibrate our conscience according to God's word by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Conscience, the word conscience is a compound word. Con means with. Science means knowledge. So the idea is that it's with knowledge. So that's why it's so important what we're doing right now. Because what you're doing right now is you're gaining the knowledge of God's word. And the Holy Spirit takes that knowledge and calibrates your conscience so that you can go out this week and you make decisions with that knowledge, with the power of the Holy Spirit. You're able to obey God and you're convicted to obey God. And that's why this is so important right here. How, being under the preaching of God's word and, and the Sunday classes under the teaching of God's word is so important because it calibrates a conscience. That's what Paul's talking about. And God is glorified when you apply your Christian freedom with a conscience calibrated with God's word. Notice the scripture there in verse 26. This principle is based on verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the market. In the meat market without raising any question on the ground ground of conscience. And then verse 26 is a quotation of Psalm 24, 1. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's interesting that many Jewish families would take this psalm and sing it before they ate. So they would sing Psalm 24, 1 before they ate their Meal, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What's the principle from this verse right here, from Psalm 24, 1? I think the principle is that God owns everything, right? The the cattle, the the meat, or the, um, the goats, and the, the sheep, God owns it all. Someone might take that and sacrifice it in a temple and then sell it, but God's the one who owns it. No deity, other deity, no idol owns that meat. So so because God owns all meat, therefore we can take that meat and we can eat it for the glory of God. So the conclusion is there's nothing material that is inherently evil just because it was brought into an idol's temple. So we can buy that meat and we can eat that meat. That's what he's saying right here. God gave us the gift of animals to eat since all meat is all meat is god's meat i can buy it for the glory and eat it for the glory of god so, so we don't need to research where that meat came from like we don't need the christian liberty police to go around the market and try to figure out the origins of all that meat oh here's the meat over here that was to zeus oh this this meat over here it wasn't to zeus okay so give us a map christians of the market, and let's let's mark off the places that are sacrificed to Zeus and the ones that aren't set. He's, He's saying that's not what we're supposed to do here. This is a very important point, because some Christians set up their Christian liberty standards as the rules for all Christians to follow, and then they seek to impose those on other people. It's like it's not found in the scriptures, but this is what I think it should happen. We often have in the past called those standards, here's my standards, and then we impose those upon other people and say, good Christians live like this. Or or some people and organizations and many books out there relish weighing down the consciences of other people so people will follow their rules. Let me just give you a couple of examples. I won't give you very specific ones, just general. I've heard some pastors speak about vaccines in this way? You're like, oh, boy, we're really getting into it. Yeah, well, you got to give some real examples here. I personally have a conviction about vaccines based upon God's word. My wife and I considered, prayed, and we came to a conclusion on that. You've never heard me in the pulpit state it, and I don't think i probably even told more than two or three people in this room because it's not important. <laughs> It's not appropriate for us to be the vaccine warriors and act like, if you don't take my position on the vaccine, then you're a bad person. And I've heard people in the pulpit declare, like, this is from God. Like, you're not going to go to, you know, a a passage in scripture and find where it talks about vaccinations. It's not in there. Now, you should have principles from God's word that's guiding you. You should come to, to personal convictions on it. But we're not the Christian liberty warriors out there going and making sure everyone's following my Christian liberty position. I've read books that declare there are only certain music beats that are holy. So, so this, this music's holy because it has this beat, and, and this music's not holy because it has this beat, and that's not in the Bible. And I don't even understand the whole beat thing, you know? But I know it's not in the Bible. I haven't found it anywhere, at least. There are those who preach against women wearing pants. You might have heard that. It's not really maybe a thing today, but it still sometimes happened or only homeschool. And and what happens with those people is they act as if holy people take their Christian liberty standard and the degenerates take other positions. And that's prideful, right? It, it, It lifts you up and it doesn't bring glory to God. And so notice here... Your conscience is calibrated by God's word. It's not by someone else's conscience. That's what he's saying in this scenario in verse 27. Now in verse 27, you have this this unbeliever who invites you to his home. He worships idols. He sacrifices probably some of his own animals in, in that temple. And he invites you to his house. And he wants to offer you some meat. So should you buy it. That's the question. Look at verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, why would you go? Maybe to give them the gospel, right? Notice this next word. It's actually a command. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Oh, where did that meat come from? No, don't do that. Verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I, don't, I do not mean your conscience, but his. Then notice this in verse 29. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So notice if you eat at your unbelieving neighbor's house, what does he say you can do? You can eat that meat offered to idols. Or I should say, even if it was offered to idols. If it doesn't become an issue for his conscience or someone else's conscience. And so he says, don't, you don't need to ask. You don't need to try to pry and figure it out. In fact, verse 27, he says, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, whose conscience are we talking about in Verse 27. Verse 25, we were talking about our conscience. Verse 27, he says, you're talking about whose conscience? His conscience. Look at verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. And he says, not your own, but his conscience. So you don't eat, not because your conscience will sin by eating the meat, but you don't eat because you don't want to offend the conscience of that person. Because you don't want to hinder the gospel in that person's life. So, so do my, are my convictions determined by the conscience of someone else? Think about that. Are my convictions determined by the, by the conscience of somebody else? What's the answer to that? The answer is no, it's not. You might restrict a decision that you make. You might sacrifice a right that you have for the sake of someone else's conscience. But another person's conscience is not your guide. God's word is our guide. And so he says in verse 29, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And what's the answer to that? It should not be determined by someone else's conscience. In other words, your conscience is not the standard for my conscience. My conscience is not the standard for your conscience. That's why I try to be as much as possible very careful about some specific things I say in regard to Christian liberty areas. Because I don't want to list my conscience up here and say, that's what you should follow. Now, in regard to the gospel and doctrinal convictions, absolutely, because it's from God's word. But in regard to how I apply the scriptures, I think it's very important as a pastor to be very careful about that. The church often has people who love to go around and are the Christian liberty police force. You know what I'm talking about? They love to go up to people and say, I don't think you should wear that to church. Now, fortunately, I don't think this has happened here that I know of, okay, so... I'm giving examples that I'm not thinking of anything in particular. Or or they like to go out and weigh other people's conscience down with all their knowledge. I've had people in the past do that with stores. You know, you buy food from that store, do you know what that money goes to? And they go to Google and you know, they send me the link and it's like, you know, all this, you know, Or when I was in Wisconsin at a church up there, there was a man in the church who loved to weigh the consciences of people with his research. The the true history behind this. And I think this was before blogs and all that kind of stuff. But he had, I mean, he one time I remember came into church with stacks of books, you know, to back up his claims. And, you know, he had certain holidays that he would, I'm not certain, I mean, pretty much every holiday we could think of certain holidays that he thought were bad, and symbols, he wanted to make us know the real meaning behind symbols. And so if you followed his conscience and his convictions on those things, honestly, I was like, sometimes I would think, is there anything that's not evil in his life? Cards were evil. Almost every restaurant that he thought about was evil because, you know, in the end, they don't support the conservatives. They supported this, and so I don't want to do that, and so that's evil, and many foods that, you know, that we might want to eat, he wouldn't want to eat because, you know, he'd research it and find out who really supported that, where that money goes to. Every holiday was another example of paganism for him from the Roman Empire. And, and he didn't go this far, but if he took his logic far enough, I was like, how do you even have days of the week and months, you know? <laughs> and the point is, is that He he researched, he was the Christian liberty detective, and he went out there to try to weigh down our consciences with all this information. I don't think this means that we live in ignorance of our culture, but it does mean that holiness is not found in you digging up dirt so you can ban things. (laughs) Right? Obviously, if something's obvious, then we should know that. So don't go live as a hermit, you know, in some kind of hole somewhere and don't know what's going on in the world. On the other hand, don't go on Google and think everything is true, by the way. And don't go on there and try to find out as much as you can. And I think the other warning I would have with this is that many times people like to shape history to fit their position. Can I tell you, a lot of pastors do this. I've heard pastors preach on different topics, and they'll they'll take history and they'll say, oh, this is the history of this, and therefore this is why you should do this. And I'm just going to warn you, if you hear people doing that, you, you need to ask yourself the question. Okay, that's what you think history says. What does God's word say? Because <laughs> that's the most important. And yes, we should look at history and we should consider those kind of things. But we calibrate our conscience according to God's word, not on someone's version of history or, or not on some type of thing we find on Google. So God is glorified when you apply your Christian freedom, with a conscience calibrated with God's word, and then in a way that builds up others and spiritually builds up yourself. Go back to verse 23. Verse 23, Paul quotes the Corinthians again. All things are lawful. That's a quote that the Corinthians liked to use. All things are lawful, and then Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. And then Paul responds, but not all things build up. And evidently, this was one of their favorite phrases, all things are lawful. In fact, if you were to turn back to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, you notice that Paul used it again there. He quoted them again there. And this phrase is a phrase that displays the immaturity of this church. I mean, the immature person makes decisions based upon what's wrong with this, right? The, the person that's immature asks the question, what's wrong with doing that? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. The Bible doesn't say that's a sin. So what's, what's wrong with that? And really at the center of that is what? Is, or I should say who? It's me. What's wrong with this? it says, well, I want to do this. That's lawful. I can do that. It's not a sin. But for the Christian who is mature, the right question is, is, what brings glory to God?" It's not, "What can I do?" It's "What glorifies God?" And therefore, what is most helpful? What is helpful for other people? What is that which will build other people up? I think about it as a child, and when you think about when you were a child and you know your bedtime is coming around. Your parents say it's ready. You're, it's time for bed. Get ready for bed. And as a child, what did you want to do? I want to stay up longer. Can we stay up longer? You know, Dad, the McGillicuddy stay up. They stay up till midnight every night. How do we? We had to go to bed at nine. You know, or eight or whatever your bedtime is. And that's immaturity speaking. Immaturity says, I-, I want to stay up later. But maturity actually says, What is best? And as you get older, <laughs> more mature, you're like, when can I go to bed, right? <laughs> because you know that the next morning you have to get up and you have responsibilities. And so you go to bed at a decent hour because you realize it's most helpful for you. That's called maturity. And in the, in the, in the church, in the Christian life, maturity doesn't say, what do I want to do? Maturity says, how can I bring glory to God by helping people and building other people?" Up and so the Corinthians here were immature. All things are lawful for us. Paul says, yeah, "Yeah, but not all things are helpful." And isn't that what you want to do? All things are lawful for us. Yeah, but not everything builds up. And so consider how can you build people up. And so in my little diagram here, I my little diagram here I put up there two filters to help us as we make decisions in regard to personal. Convictions. And first, it's the effect upon others. How does this spiritually affect others? And the second is, how does it spiritually affect me? Because in verse 23, I think he's kind of summing up what he talked about before. And and, and the first question is, the spiritual effect upon others. And Paul really talked about that in chapter 8 and in chapter 9. In fact, go to chapter 8 and look at verse 1. When he brought up this issue, in regard to me offered to idols in Christian liberty areas, chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says what? Love builds up. I mean, that's the heart right there. This is what Paul's getting at. They had pride. They had knowledge. We know what God's word says, so we can do what we want to do. Paul says, that's not what Christianity is about. It's about love. And so love says, how can I use these things to serve other people? And so really the question for them in chapter 8 is, could this lead another person into temptation? In other words, you had some weak consciences in the church, and and some of the people were saying, we can do this. And Paul says, have you considered how that's going to affect those people? It it could lead them back into idolatry. Look at chapter 9, in verse 19. Paul is giving himself as an example. And Paul said he exercised Christian liberty to spiritually build up other people. Verse 19, chapter 9, 19. For though I am free from all, I have freedom too, guys. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. And so Paul asked really this question. You could say, how does this spiritually build up and help other believers? Like, How will this advance the gospel in other people's lives? That's what Paul cared about. And then go to chapter 10. You can see this in, in chapter 10. He turns the attention from others to how it will affect you. And in chapter 10, verse 12, he says what? Take heed lest you fall. So the question for us is how does this tempt me to sin? Like, how could this affect me spiritually? Does this build me up? So as we make decisions, I think we need to ask those questions. We have access to so many things in our society, don't we? Think of all the things that entertain us. We have TV and cable and smartphones, streaming services, so many types of social media sites, movies, YouTube, vacation spots, the beach, mountains, the city, restaurants. I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, we have more things to enjoy in this society than any society could ever imagine. And with all those freedoms, you know, as Christians in America, we need to ask, how will exercising those freedoms affect me spiritually Like, how will exercising those freedoms affect the church of Jesus Christ? I think of one in particular. Think about the Internet. Is the Internet inherently wrong? There's a lot of bad things on there. But is it inherently wrong? What's the answer to that? No, it's not inherently wrong. But could your unfiltered access to the Internet spiritually hurt you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so there might be a principle there that we take and we therefore restrict our access or the access of our family members to certain sites. Or how about vacations? Are vacations good?
1: Yeah, they're good.
0: Sometimes it's nice to get away and kind of get relief from everything. But could it be that exercising my right to go on a vacation on a regular basis, every weekend? Could that affect me spiritually? Like not being under the preaching of God's word? Or could it affect the church, not influencing other people to follow Jesus Christ? So do you see what I'm saying? Like if, it's, if we're taking good things and we're asking the question, how does this affect other people? How does this affect me? And so look at verse 24. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his Neighbor. So what glorifies God? It's when we seek the spiritual good of other people. And so remember, Christian liberty is the freedom to apply the scriptures in different ways, in different contexts. Why? For the sake of doing what I want? No, for the sake of serving others. And it's not ignoring sin. It's not condoning spiritual immaturity. It's giving of my right. So that I can spiritually grow and I can help other people spiritually grow. I think it's some examples. It's a grandparent that wants to watch something on TV, but you have little grandkids in your house. And so you turn the TV off so their little minds aren't affected by the adult content. It's coming to a church gathering like this and you could sit with your friends or your family, but you see someone who, who's new here and you say, I'm going to give up my right to sit where I want. I'm going to sit with them, befriend them. It's sometimes parents having a disagreement with each other and shutting your mouth or going to a place where your kids can't hear you so you don't cause your kids to be bitter in their hearts. It's saying, I, I could do this, but for the sake of someone else and their spiritual growth, I'm going to choose to do something else because I want to glorify God. And then look at the, the last example he gave, verse 28. So remember, we had two examples. One was going into the marketplace. The other one was going to an unbeliever's home and them giving you meat that was offered to idols. Verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of one who informed you. For the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. So just imagine the struggle with that. I mean, here you are at a a neighbor's house. You want to give him the gospel, and he plops down in front of you two thick porterhouse steaks. And your mouth is watering and you look at that meat and you think, oh, I can't wait to pour some sauce on there and cut it open and put that in my mouth and it's going to melt right in my mouth. And he says, hey, just so you know, this has been offered to Zeus. Now, why would an unbeliever do that? Why would someone bring something up like that? Probably a couple reasons. One I thought of was that maybe they're just trying to help you out. Maybe they know that you want to follow Christ. And so they want to say, hey, I know you want to follow Christ. You probably don't want to do this, right? You know, let me help you out here. This was offered in sacrifice to Zeus. And remember, okay, we're going back in their culture. Remember that they thought Zeus was real. <laughs> like, and so these unbelievers didn't think that these were just myths. They were thinking this is a real God. So, like, you have your God and I have my God. Do you realize this was a sacrifice to my God? You probably don't want to do that. And so they're probably trying to help you out. Or it could be they're testing your loyalty. Will you choose Christ? Or will you reject the steak I mean reject the stake and choose Christ, or will you eat the steak and eat meat offered to idols? But either way, we choose to love that person by not eating the meat because we're concerned about their soul. And so we glorify God by applying our Christian convictions in a way that builds up others. And so let's conclude with verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks. Those are the two main unbelieving ethnic groups in the Roman Empire. So here you have unbelievers. Don't offend these two ethnic groups. Or to the church of God. Don't go into the church and, 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 uh, and, and sin against those people. Don't cause them to sin against their conscience. Verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And so he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. When is God most glorified? It's when, not when you get what you want, it's actually when you reflect Christ and you give up your rights for the sake of serving other people. And Paul says there in verse 11, be imitators of me. And Paul gave himself as an example. He had a right to marry but he chose not to marry. He had a right to go to a Galilee village and get a little farm up there, right? And spend the rest of his days up there. He had the right to to have prominence in Jerusalem, but he decided instead to suffer and to give the gospel even when he was rejected. And then notice the very end, be imitators of me as I am of Christ who is the example of giving up his rights for us. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he is God. And he deserves worship. He deserves praise. He deserves every person to bow before him. But when he came to this earth, he humbled himself and became a man. And he lived among sinners who didn't worship him, sinners who didn't honor him, who didn't glorify him, And he lived a perfect life, and then he died on that cross. He humbled himself, Philippians 2 says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as he suffered on that cross, and as he died, the pain wasn't just physical. It was spiritual. God the Father poured out hell upon him. Why did he do it? Well, he didn't come to this earth to be served, but to serve. To serve whom? Us. and Give his life a ransom for many. Friends, if Jesus gives up his rights so that we could have salvation and eternal life, can't we do the same? Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again, and now he's at the Father's right hand. And for all those who believe in him, he promises to save. You might be in here without Jesus Christ this morning. and You might say, I've never heard this, or maybe I've never really considered this. And the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. You need Jesus. And God's call to you is be reconciled to him. You can be forgiven if you believe in Jesus Christ. And church for us, how can we apply this to our life? Here's my challenge for you. I'd like you to go home today or go to the restaurant, wherever you're going to go. Take this sheet. I want you to start thinking through decisions you make. It, it, you know, Think through your parenting. Think through your marriage. If you're single, think through your singleness. Think through spending, how you spend your money. Think through schooling. Think through all these different issues, these decisions we have to make, and then ask, what does the scripture say about this? What what are the precepts that are are, are gospel convictions and doctrinal convictions? What are our personal convictions? How will these decisions affect others? How will they affect us? How can we trust and obey For the glory of God.